Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a podcast series brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we delve into the dynamic world of banking. I'm your host, Michael Avery. Uh, great to be back with you. And in this uh, series, we're exploring the evolving landscape of banking, retracing the roots of fractional reserve banking, the rise of the all-powerful central bankers, from the booms and the busts of the cycles, from bank loans to bank runs, from old-school vaults to virtual wallets, and the ever-increasing rise of bank regulation and its impact on local South African financial institutions. So whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast, or just someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're in the right place. Well, welcome to the third episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. And whenever I talk to the various market commentators on my radio show, one thing more than any other dominates how they view the future for stocks and bonds and, in fact, all asset classes, really. And that is the Fed and whether inflation is now structurally higher and whether interest rates, too, will have to settle at much higher levels than what was considered the new normal after the global financial crisis of close to zero interest rates in the developed world held the Austrians issued a 100-year ZERP bond, uh, which was heavily oversubscribed at the height of that. And uh, we've certainly seen a lot of that unwind over the last 12 months. We've seen South Africa's government bond yield soaring with the interest burden crowding out other important spending, as was recently alluded to by the finance minister in his mini-budget. Pretty soon we're going to be spending around 22 cents of every rand collected in uh, in revenue, in taxes, servicing our national debt. So just think about that as, uh, we, uh, as we dive into this uh, next discussion. Lots to discuss with my guest today, Professor Brian Cantor, an economist, former chief investment strategist of Investec Wealth and Investment. Uh, He's a professor emeritus at the University of Cape Town, where he was the dean of the Faculty of Commerce and head of the School of Economics. He's uh, the previous non-executive chairman of AccuCap Properties and also the founding chairman of the VNA Waterfront. Uh, and Brian, you hold both your degrees as well from UCT, a BCom and a BA honours. And speaking of that institution, it grew from your old school, Sachs, which is uh, certainly steeped in history and tradition, given its uh, linked to the Springboks as well. It gave Western Province its blue hoops, I believe. And uh, great to have you on the podcast. Firstly, what did you think of the the box going back to back, given your alma mater is uh, one of the key feeders of the Springboks over the years? Yes, Sachs, uh, South African College School, amalgamated with what was the University of Cape Town in the early 1900s. So we and and the the university adopted the Sachs hoops. Remember, South African College School. So so the school was part of of a college that awarded uh, degrees through what was the um, university. I think it was called the University of the Cape of Good Hope, which was the examining authority. Eighteen twenty nine. Eighteen twenty nine. Well, there's a bit of history for you uh, on on a podcast where we like to go to history, yeah. Yes. The school was in, uh, worth mentioning, the school was in town. It was an inner city school. And uh, we lived in Aranyazuk, and the school was down down there. It was an inner city school with with a strong representation of Jewish students, of whom I was one, who lived in the area. And gave her the school some of its its character. In fact, in the thirties, the best boxers at the school were the, the Jewish boys. Uh, later, it became the um, St John's Orphanage boys, who were the good boxers. And the yeah. one the one sport we always beat bishops at was boxing. 
<laughs> because we were a we were a pretty tough crowd. Anyway, well, it's that digression. Digression is that digression that uh, informs, I think, uh, to some extent, where we find ourselves in markets today. Because um, you you might get a bit of a bloodied nose or lead with the chin if you try and fight the Fed, uh, as many of my market commentators refer to on my show. And it seems to be the only game in town. And and we'll bring it back to how it affects us here in South Africa in a in a while. But firstly, I think just to establish. Some basics here, Brian. It's very important just to understand the the basics of inflation because we all are desperate to understand um, what is driving this inflation, supply demand dynamics. Post COVID, was it supply chain issues? There's been lots of money printing, all that kind of thing, because it will ultimately inform where interest rates go and where the cost of capital goes. So, can you just elaborate on how you see the supply and demand dynamics influencing? our inflation that we're experiencing today? Because it certainly isn't the, the, the transient uh, school that we thought a couple of years ago. It seems to be a lot stickier. No, no central banks thought it was transitory. And they were, they were wrong because they didn't appreciate the role that money plays in, in causing prices to rise. So... Let's start with the definition of inflation. So it's it's continuous rise in prices. A continuous, it's not one-off, it's continuous. And then you would add caused, if you followed Milton Friedman, you say caused by an excess in the supply of money over the demand to, to hold that money. And then you, then you say, well, where, where does money come from? Well, in the old days, there were strict limits on the supply of money that uh, governments and central banks could provide, and that was the convertibility requirement. Your money had to be converted on demand into gold. So you had to have gold gold reserves, and that limited uh, your ability to create money because it, ha- it had to be backed in a, in a very fractional way, but that if you're if you're the customers of banks or the people who own the notes wanted gold, they could, they could get gold. Now, that all broke down in the 1970s. The link with gold and the restraint on the supply of money imposed by a convertibility requirement uh, fell away at the uh, choice of the Ameri- Ameri- Americans didn't ask anybody. They just decided they would no longer convert dollars into gold on the request of central banks, which was the system that had been imposed by the Bretton Woods, the post-war reconstruction, which also established the IMF and the World Bank and a sort of gold standard linked to the all-powerful mm. dollar. And the that Nixon shock. Broke down. Yes, it was Nixon and his advisors decided in August 71 Against pressure from France in particular, the gold said, yeah, we've got all these dollars, we want gold. And America said, well, no longer, you can't get gold. We'll, we'll no longer supply gold. They also did some peculiar things like an incomes policy at the time. But if you think about money, it, without a convertibility constraint or restraint, Governments can print as much, as much money as as they like. It doesn't doesn't cost anything to print money, so you can create as much of it as seems appropriate in in circumstances. 
And you get you get inflations when governments print more money than people are willing to hold. And you get hyperinflations when you get extraordinary amounts of money. Well, COVID introduced vast amounts of extra government spending, mostly in the form of direct income relief, funded by printing money, funded in part by, by printing money. So the... Uh, the U.S. Treasury was was writing checks on its account with the Fed and uh, depositing it. And as the uh, checks were deposited in household uh, banking accounts in the trillions. And uh, the, 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 this money, as it usually does, if the, in excess of the demand to hold that money, that it results in more spending on goods, services, and financial assets, and ho- including homes and all sort of objects, dot, uh, and so mm, on. Mm, so mm. it was it was classic, classic inflation, inflation for the for the usual money supply reasons. And um, the central bank somehow uh, were taken by surprise. That, that's probably the biggest surprise in all of this. In that the central banks uh, d- were taken by surprise because, as you say, this yes. is the the classical textbook definition of what happens when you see you know money supply increasing, uh, and and certainly there was a, a strong call post the global financial crisis when we had interest rates artificially low for modern monetary theory, so to speak, MMT, where uh, if you're the Fed or the world's um, central bank backed by the might of the dollar that you could just print your way out of a crisis uh, without triggering inflation. Well, I think that's disproved that for one. Could you just elaborate, though, on how inflation expectations affect the willingness of households to hold money and how this then impacts the broader economy? Yes, so that the, and we should pay attention to inflationary expectations and its role in the thinking of central banks. But let's start with simply your demand. Your demand to hold money now. Inflation happens when the supply of money increases at a faster rate than economic agents are willing to hold that money. Now. The demand for money increases generally with with income and wealth. So it's not as if there's a fixed demand for money. Money demand is a function of interest rates and wealth and inflationary expectations. Other things equal. If you expect more inflation, it becomes more expensive to hold what is usually non-interest bearing or low interest bearing money. So so. In a real sense, your demand for for money will fall away as you expect more inflation and you adjust to avoid the loss of purchasing power that uh, inflation will cause. And at an extreme, if you, as in Zimbabwe, very close to us, if you get hyperinflation, well, that will destroy the demand for money or that money almost com- completely. People will, in a hyperinflation situation, or even a you know, inflation of order 20, 30% a year, you, by holding money, you, you're losing 30 or, or more percent of that uh, purchasing power every, every year, and that can accelerate. So when you get hyperinflation, it doesn't last very long. People just give up on, on holding mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. 
And then they shift and, towards uh, um, using the dollar, for example. Now, uh, yes, which is probably a good idea. I mean, if I were in Argentina, I would say dollarization is, is actually the, one of the mm. ways you'll get out of your in permanent, persistent, continuous increases in price. So just go back a step. Supply can also cause, shortage of supply can also cause prices to rise. So like the price of any good or service, their supply forces and their demand forces. But the supply forces are, the, are constrained by the real stuff, the real scarcity of re resources. On the, de the demand side, you can have unlimited demands depending on how much money governments uh, decide to print. And you can't get persistent increases in prices simply in response to a supply-side shock. So less supply, drought, mm. a flood, a famine will cause prices to rise. But they can't continue to rise unless those price increases are accommodated with more money. And the, uh, the COVID story is is a story of, of more money, more government spending financed by central banks through quantitative easing, through, through buying bonds in the market and the like, but accompanied also by a supply-side shock. Now, the uh, post-COVID inflation came to an end, for again, for the usual reasons. The uh, Fed uh, recognized its mistake, recognized the danger in inflation perpetuating and um, slowed down the supply of money and raised interest rates, yes, but supply, uh, the supply of money in the US over the last year has actually fallen and the supply of bank credit has also fallen. So if you want to know why prices have stopped rising at the rate they were and, and the rate of inflation is falling away in the US, it's because of a lack of demand. And the lack of demand is linked to the supply of money, which is in retreat. As Milton Friedman famously which, stated, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, as, as you've just so succinctly explained. Because, I mean, it makes intuitive sense. If you've got money in circulation chasing a finite number of goods, well, that uh, will then lead to an increase in yes. the price of, of those goods. You can create money, but it, it has a political dimension to it. Remember, why has inflation been brought under control in the U.S.? And the answer fundamentally is because inflation in the U.S. is un unpopular. And in fact, it's still unpopular. I mean, one of the, one of the reasons why President Biden is not well-liked is because prices have risen, risen as much as they have. So ultimately, it's a political issue. How much inflation do you, do you want to tolerate? Well, it, it depends on its political consequences because we know what causes inflation. It's too much money. So if you, if you want to control inflation, you have to control the, uh, mm. the incentive. You've got to restrict the uh, reasons. You've got to accept, you know, you've, you've got to decide not to print money. So the decision to target low inflation is ultimately a political one. What are the challenges or the trade-offs then that policymakers face when attempting to balance inflation control with other economic objectives? So, so I mean, the recent, as you say, you don't fight 
the Fed. The Fed is all important. And the Fed has, has had to act or believed it important and encouraged to act to, to reduce inflation back towards the sort of 2% target. And uh, there is a, a trade-off. If you're going to reduce in, inflation, having let the inflation genie escape the bottle, now now you want to you want to capture it, want to capture the genie. Well, you you've got to uh, accept the danger of a of a recession. In ordinary times, um, inflation and economic growth will move will move in the same direction. So so you've got a uh, economy running uh, too fast. Uh, infl- inflationary pressures are picking up. Uh, you you slow down spending. You s- slow down demand growth by increasing interest rates. I would say also by slowing down the growth in the money supply, and things fall back into line. But there are times, and recent times uh, indicate as much, where you have to give priority to inflation. So 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 the economy is not maybe not performing quite as well as it. Could, but inflation is intolerably high. So you accept as a central bank or as a government that you may have to, to trade off lower inflation for less growth. So you have to um, face up to the dangers of a, of uh, slowing it down too rapidly and, and bringing, upon, uh, bringing on a, a recession. And then the, the financial markets become very disturbed by these possibilities. As as we've seen in the in America, I mean, the effort to slow down inflation really begins in late 2021. 2022 is a terrible year for the stock and bond markets. I mean, they lose both lose 20, 30 percent of their their index values. And that's that's coming to terms with the dangers of of recession, the impact of rapidly increasing interest rates designed to slow down spending. So inflation, too much demand, less inflation, reduced demand. So given that, and where we find ourselves at the moment, uh, with the, the Fed's most recent pause being probably articulated as uh, a somewhat hawkish pause, but the market seems to think that we've reached a peak. Uh, the, the big fear is that interest rates may remain higher for longer. Uh, given what we're seeing with the money supply in the U.S., that might tend to indicate that inflation could come down maybe slightly quicker than the consensus view in markets. And obviously, wealth is made when you take a position, informed position that goes against the consensus, because that's not where most people are positioned. How do you see the path of interest rates and inflation in the US progressing over the next 12 to 24 months? The, the market did fight with the Fed over over the outlook for the economy. So the, the market was concerned, I think, that the Fed had too too optimistic a view of the of the outlook for the economy and that they would uh, they would overdo the uh, the restrictions, the um, reduction in in spending like they would keep interest rates too high for for too long well and the 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 market consensus could see recession coming hence the slope of the yield curve so that uh, long-term interest rates were 
were, were below short-term short interest rates, indicating that interest rates would, would have to come down to, to make for a, an equilibrium sort of term structure of interest rates. So the market and the Fed were, were fighting over the outlook for the economy, the market concern that uh, hence the weakness of the share and bond markets in 2022, that the Fed was, was overdoing it. Mm. It turned out that the economy, the U.S. economy, has performed surprisingly well, be- better than consensus of the time. But I think if you if you um, look at the market over the last few weeks, particularly l- l- last week, it seems quite clear that the, the that the U.S. economy, despite an outstanding third quarter, four percent, nearly five percent growth in the third quarter, was slowing down, and that the uh, employment report indicated that pre- pretty clearly, and uh, the thought that the Fed would would at least pause became consensus, and we saw the long bond yields coming in uh, quite sharply. So the long the long end of the bond market had been pushing higher on on better economic news and suddenly reversed reversed course. So I think the my own my own sense is that the the job of fighting inflation has been won. The the war against inflation is pretty much over. Uh, the Fed has succeeded, and um, the pressure on prices. On the demand side of the economy has fallen away, and uh, the da- the dangers of a of of slow or even recession have, have I think somewhat somewhat increased, which it, it is the the case that the American economy's growth slow, slows to a pretty much a halt, or barely barely positive economic growth over the next year or or, or, mm. or so. The Fed, Fed has room to cut interest rates. And that, that is, again, one of the arguments for raising interest rates in the first instance so that you, you, can, cut them, you can cut them later if needs, if needs be. And I think those needs will manifest themselves mm. over the next 12, 12 mm. or to 18 months. So, so the market is looking, looking ahead, not so much to recession, which I think is pretty much baked in, but to lower in, lower interest rates. There's obviously it's the, not the recession that matters; it's mm. the expected recession that matters. And mm. that's not so much the level of interest rates; it's where interest rates are heading. And I want to bring this then back to the Reserve Bank. And uh, you know, you mentioned the fact that when interest rates rise, you do give yourself as a central bank the cushion to then respond to a downturn in economic growth by reducing interest rates. But we're operating here in South Africa in a very different environment where we've had tepid to no economic growth for for some time now, Brian. And uh, we've seen rates move into what seems to be quite restrictive territory. And I know you've been a a critic of the Reserve Bank's use of interest rates. How would you like to see the Reserve Bank respond at this particular stage of the cycle to not only ensure that inflation is contained, but to also help with economic growth? Well, the, the first point about inflation in South Africa is it can only be contained with exchange rate stability. So you, you really can't hope to bring inflation down in South Africa unless you have support from the exchange rate and therefore from the prices of imported goods and exported goods. So 
the variability, the unpredictability of the exchange, the rand dollar and other exchange rates really makes containing inflation very much more more complicated. If you if you look at the causes of inflation in South Africa over the last few years, it's not too much demand. It's clearly very uh, restrained demand in, in South Africa. Spend, spending growth remains under very constrained circ- circumstances, as does supply. But it's impossible to attribute rising prices in South Africa to excess demand. And if uh, if you go back to the to the COVID, the lockdown, South Africa did very little by way of money growth. We didn't do quantitative easing. We didn't do what the major central banks were doing. Yes, we cut we cut interest rates, but if you look at uh, money supply growth in South Africa over the lockdown period, it was very con- constrained. You could not say that there was too much money pumped into the South African system. Uh, and and that was responsible for for higher prices. So that's my essential argument with with the Reserve Bank. They have the task of controlling demand, as has central bank, through appropriate interest rate settings and through I would add appropriate consideration of of money and bank credit uh, supply chains. And that, and that's their job. Make, make sure that the, the demand doesn't run ahead of supply. Well, uh, and that job is pretty much much done. In fact, if if anything, we've had too little demand. We've also had too little supply. I mean, if you think about the fundamental problems of the South African economy, it's slow growth in supply, and to a limited ex- extent, I would say. The demand side has been under too much uh, restraint rather than too too little restraint by way of the uh, policies adopted by the the Reserve Bank. So the the essential question then is how do you cope with an unpredictable exchange rate? Because it will have short-term effects on on prices. And my argument is always you really have to ignore it. You can't run monetary policy chasing... uh, an exchange rate that is really beyond your your influence and control. Uh, an exchange rate really reflects global sentiment, risk on, risk off, and the rand is particularly vulnerable to uh, uh, to global sentiment. So, so at the moment, I would say when the Reserve Bank talks of as it does, it says we we may have to raise interest interest rates. It just makes no no sense to me whatsoever. The last thing the South African economy needs is higher interest rates at, at this stage. If anything, it, it, it needs lower interest rates to encourage a bit of, uh, of demand in the economy. So that's really the essence of my critique. Now, the, the Reserve Bank says they, they, it always talks about second round effects of inflation. So mm-hmm. you have a, an exchange rate shock that causes prices to rise. And the Reserve Bank thinks that that, that increase in prices that will lead to more inflation expected and therefore higher prices become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy against which they must act. But I think that makes no sense what, whatsoever. I don't think there's any evidence for self-perpetuating 
inflation through uh, more inflation expected because uh, your inflationary expectations, as in the case of America recently, run up against the uh, realities of demand. If the economy doesn't support higher prices, you won't get higher prices. And our, our economy doesn't support higher prices. There's not enough demand. Brian, given that and what you've just articulated, uh, clearly uh, it seems you should be filling that uh, vacant position uh, that Kubin Naidu has left for you. Uh, but honestly, though, what changes in leadership do you think we need to see at the Reserve Bank to give effect to these uh, policy alternatives that you've just outlined? Well, I, I would say people who think a bit more like me and say, you know, you have to accept reality. You don't react to exchange rates movements. You ignore them in both directions. And you and you give close consideration to the balance between supply and demand in in the economy. And don't and don't disturb that balance. Now I'm not I'm not campaigning for a place on the monetary policy committee. No. I'm, I'm too old I'm too old for that. But I think it need, the Reserve Bank needs more more subtlety in its its thinking and a less instinctively hawkish mm. tone and stance that uh, is uh, really Miss Lesetcher's uh, sort of uh, approach. I'm I'm sure every time they vote on interest rates, he votes for a higher one. That doesn't serve South Africa well. Don't react to to to. Uh, global moves on interest rates either. You don't try and protect the exchange rate. You just you have to just let it be and accept that it'll move prices in both directions depending on you know weaker or higher. But just just ignore it and, and focus on the demand side of the South African economy. Is there too much spending or is there too little spending? That's really the only question you have to answer. And uh, consistently, I think we've had too too little rather than too much. Well, thanks, Brian. I think that uh, brings us to the end of this episode. Look forward to having you back on next week where we're going to be looking under the hood. Uh, this is more monetary policy next week. We're going to be looking under the hood of global banking and uh, discussing bank failures, why banks fail, and uh, the role of uh, central banks and that infamous Fed stress test here on the Monocle Banking Podcast, brought to you by Monocle Solutions. Before we go, uh, I'd like to remind you that if you've got any questions or topics you'd like us to cover, feel free to reach out. You can find us on all good podcast platforms. Reach out to me at uh, The Badger on Twitter or email the team at Monocle. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Take care.